you might need to update how you think about different countries that we used to group together as Eastern Europe. There is a roots in that history that go beyond the Iron Curtain, that go beyond the Warsaw Pact. Coming up, Jacob Mikanowski explains how much has changed in the past generation in the formerly communist countries of Europe. That sense of Eastern Europe being this other separate place, that's kind of evaporated. Welsh may be a famously difficult language to learn, but it has some clever words that can explain the kind of feelings that might require a whole sentence to describe in English. A sense that you have that you feel at home in a place, though you've never been there before. Pamela Petro tells us how her first time in Wales, and a special word the Welsh use, made her feel right at home. To be in the present moment, but longing for something beyond it. Say goodbye to Eastern Europe and Borada to the Welsh in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It turned into a lifelong love affair with the nation of Wales. When Pamela Petro went there for summer studies, she felt right at home. And she was charmed by words the Welsh use to describe emotions that English requires a little more effort to describe. She shows us a side of Wales that might steal your heart, too, in the hour ahead. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves looking at how much the former Eastern Bloc of European nations have changed since their communist governments fell apart. The term Eastern Europe has historically been used to lump together a massive, complex, and diverse area ranging from Germany to Russia and from Estonia to Albania. But Eastern Europe as an idea is quickly fading and changing. Even I've made the decision to shift the names of my guidebooks and my bus tours of this region from Eastern Europe to Central Europe. And whatever you call the region, it remains an important place as the history of our world unfolds. It was a flashpoint through the 20th century and even today with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the area is in the news. Yet despite its historical and cultural riches, it's long been overlooked and underestimated by most of the world. Historian Jacob Mikanowski has compiled a new history of Eastern Europe in his book Goodbye Eastern Europe, An Intimate History of a Divided Land. Inspired by his own Polish-Lithuanian family story and organized more by theme than chronology, he describes the ever-shifting borders, borders of religion, empire, class, and ideology, which have combined to make the region, as he puts it, a place of small states with complicated fates. Jacob, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. The title of the book, Goodbye, Eastern Europe. Why goodbye? You know, it's something I think I grew up very intimately with the idea of Eastern Europe, an idea of, I grew up, I started going to Eastern Europe when I was about four years old. My parents were Polish. They got stranded here on the side of the Berlin Wall by happenstance in 1981. And once they couldn't go back, they started to. And back then, in the 80s and 90s, you would land at the airport, you'd land at Chopin Airport, you'd go out on the bare tarmac, and you knew you were in somewhere completely different. The air smelled different. You had that kind of heavy coal smoke. So this is the, in the airport air. in, yeah. in Warsaw. Chopin. Yeah. I remember Chopin Airport right. used to be, it's very nice now. It used to be real basic. I used to remember crossing the border and all of a sudden my Kleenex would be black. It was so you polluted. Know, exactly. You didn't have a black hanky in Germany, but if you went to East Germany, you had a black hanky. And you knew you knew in the air. You knew as soon as you were on the street. You knew you were like kind of different civilization. That's Eastern Europe. You, you'd crossed some kind of invisible border, sometimes a real border, if you're coming through uh, the Berlin Wall. It's so true. Yeah. It's so true. I remember in the old communist days doing a tour of Russia and Eastern Europe, and people would take the train from St. Petersburg to Helsinki, and the first thing you'd want to do is go to the market and get some fresh fruit. 
Exactly. And you, you'd have that that sense immediately. I remember just the, the empty, the stores would be empty. No advertising. I mean, it was no all, everything was generic. It's just yeah. Kleenex. And the streets were kind of empty because people didn't have cars. You'd still have, in Warsaw, even, like I remember early 90s, horse-drawn carts coming in, bringing in produce, uh-huh. you know, winter cabbage. If you had a camera, it was the same camera as everybody else. Absolutely. With the same brown case. Yeah. It, was, it must have been Russian-made. Probably. I remember in eastern Berlin looking out at parking lots and everything was just, it looked like Tupperware colors. It was just kind of dingy colors. There was nothing bright. That's true. Worse, I had that kind of like dust everywhere. And that's all gone now. I mean, that's yeah. what it's oh, like. It's, that it's, is completely it's, I was vanished. just in Warsaw last two yeah. weeks ago. And in my script for our TV work, I had go to this park and take pictures of children jumping up and down in the water park, you know. Mm-hmm. It was just exploding with life. It's a whole different world. And the, the city fabrics changed. The stores have all changed. The, the city, what's in the streets, how people dress, all that's vanished. That sense of Eastern Europe being this other separate place, that's kind of evaporated. Okay, because before it was a monolithic Warsaw Pact, right? You felt that, yeah. And, and then the, the book has a couple more layers. That's the immediate one of like that idea of there being a separate, or this other year. There even used to be a book, series of uh, books called Literature from the Other Europe. Philip Roth used to edit. Very, very cool books. But that there's an other Europe. That's really faded. What was really the other gone. Europe? What, what was that? Eastern Europe. Okay. It so, usually be like Czech, oh, the Czechoslovakia. Other I yeah. see, yeah. That's how you'd get your books, like your Kundera, or your, those great authors. It'd be like literature from the other Europe. So Eastern Europe, we're saying goodbye Eastern Europe. You're saying sort of, our image of Eastern Europe, in other words, this bleak, monolithic, gray communist, is changed. Is that what you're saying? That's changing. And it's also people, especially nations, are trying to escape that as a, um, as a label. Because there is an Eastern Europe. There is a part of Europe that's on the West, and there's a part that's in the East. You have two sides of everything. But as much as that branding, Eastern Europe... Still has that negative connotation to it. I don't think Eastern Europeans like that now. They I don't mean, like it. For 50 years, it was no. the Iron Curtain. There's the West and the East. But the Iron Curtain's old news. Most people you meet yep. in the streets weren't even born then. And uh, today, there is an Eastern Europe. It's called Russia, Ukraine, Georgia, you know, Baltic states, I suppose. Belarus, maybe. But Belarus, they, so yeah. anyone who can, and so the countries, at the level of countries, they're rebranding as Central Europe, yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. In the Baltics. They'll even, they'll be like, we're actually Scandinavian, we're Nordic, Nordic. zone. Nordic. Estonia Nordic wants zone. to be Nordic. Yeah. Estonia is not Nordic, but I say, okay, you're Nordic. It's, Let's it's, come it's on It's fine. In. It's kind of... <laughs> but there's a very you interesting thing. You see it. It's funny when Lithuania will be like, well, Nordic. I'm like, not really. I, yeah. But, um, but okay, okay, fine. okay. And in the Balkans, different, different kind of euphemisms, like Eastern Adriatic. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with journalist Jacob Mikanowski, and he's combined 20 years of teaching, travel, research, and all this experience into merging it with his own Polish, Lithuanian, Jewish, Catholic family history, and he's written a book. It's called Goodbye Eastern Europe. You can see his byline in publications like The Atlantic, The Guardian, New York Times, and more. His website is jacob-mikanowski.com, and it's spelled as you would imagine, M-I-K-A-N-O-W-S-K-I. So the first line of your book, Jacob, is this is a history of a place that doesn't exist. What, what do you mean by that? You know, it's because Eastern Europeans, and my parents are Eastern European, and I grew up Eastern European. You become Eastern European when you leave. When you're in the UK, okay. when you're in America, people are like, well, where are you from? Ah. And they're like, okay, Eastern Europe. You can slot into that big category. And that's a category that has a lot of stereotype, a lot of prejudice, a lot of, actually, I think a lot of 
unclarity. You know, people have an idea of what Spain is, uh-huh. what France is. Yeah. Uh, I taught history at a high school and university level for a lot of years, usually European history. And students have an idea of what British history is. They have an idea of what Germany is. And then you go east, and it's kind of a bunch of question marks. Mm-hmm. It's a bunch of... I'm. But the, you, can't you say it's Slavic, except for Hungary? Well, there's some of that. But I think for me, and so I, I try to reclaim an idea of Eastern Europe in this book. And for me, Eastern Europe isn't just Slavic Europe, because I kind of don't put Russia into it. I think a couple key things to being Eastern European, and I think there is a story in Eastern Europe that's worth telling, and that there is a roots in that history that go beyond the, the Iron Curtain, that go beyond the Warsaw Pact, and that it's well, part of Europe that has the maximum diversity, hmm. that historically had this incredible interwoven cultural, hmm. religious, linguistic diversity mm-hmm. that was everywhere and that runs through this band from really Albania to Estonia. And Russia, although it's 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 kind of more of a monolith, it kind of has that history of being, and it's also big. There's and, a difference between being, being big and small. And uh, Eastern Europe is sort of quintessential, lots of little tribes, little, little states. Little states. Relatively little. You know, Ukraine's a big country, but it's little compared to Russia. States that are threatened by their neighbors that for a long time weren't independent, that don't have that long, continuous history that France does, that Germany does, that Russia does, of always being in charge of its own destiny. Mm -hmm. These are states that come and go, vanish and reappear, and they don't have that sense of security. Yeah, your family's from Poland, and you were not on the map for 100 years. And all of a sudden, you're over here, then you're over there. What's going on? Well, what's going on is two words, Germany and Russia. And that's part of that. The Estonia's got that. Almost every country does. Yeah. None of them were in no, no Eastern European country. There's about 20 in that band uh-huh. that runs from Estonia to Albania, from Germany to Russia. There's about 20 countries right now. That's how you can't Kosovo. <laughs> and none of them were independent 200 years ago. Not that's right. One. That's right. Author and historian Jacob Mikanowski is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. He gets to know the land his parents came from in his book, Goodbye Eastern Europe an intimate history of a divided land. So, Jacob, a big thing we've been talking about so far, and we're looking at 20th century history of this part of Europe, the transition from 50 years of socialism to what's been now, what, 30, 35 years of of capitalism. How's that transition going? Very well in the bigger part of what used to be Eastern Europe and not very well in parts of it. So, um... Are you talking from a democracy point of view or an economic point no, of think, view? No, I think a little bit of both. I mean, I think the, there's a real divide that runs along the, those EU boundaries. The countries that are in the EU mm. have had so much progress, and it's been so fast. In Poland, since 2010, really, it was a light going on because right. there was a lot of change. There was a lot of progress. But then once you were in that bigger community, once people could move freely, mm. and I knew people who were commuting to work in England, people were just moving to Germany, moving back, the development was so fast, and it really changed like the countryside. Uh, like Poland used to be full of these beautiful wooden villages, mm-hmm. handmade houses, mm-hmm. handmade everything. It's going back a hundred years, the eastern Poland. My my aunt lives out there. I go out there a lot, and in a year or two, all that vanished. My aunt actually was. We went around looking to like buy one of those houses. She has a she has mm. a country inn, and she thought it'd be cool to have one of them. And we went in, and we asked, you know, well, everything's beautiful, everything's handmade. It's like, why are you getting rid of this? It's like, well. You can't heat it in winter. That yeah. wind goes right through it. So right. the moment you could, you, you built cement houses and this people would keep it as long as the grandma was alive. And now it's all gone. Now it looks so much more like you know, like America or like Germany. Yeah. There are parts of Eastern Europe, like Romania's got that 
I rural, found that in Romania. There's right. a place in Romania called Mara Marash, and it is like a living open-air folk museum. You can't believe how traditional people are in their lifestyles, in their dress, in their food, in their architecture, as what you find in Mara Marash. That's way up on the northern uh, region of Romania next to Ukraine, right? Yeah, I actually went down there from went to Poland, Ukraine, and then across the border right. down to that hat. went to a place called Breb. Uh-huh. That, and for me, it was like driving back 30 years to to, yeah. to Poland, my youth, where people are out with scythes. But scything, it, yes, yeah, yes. And know, it's what you dream about. It's what you yeah. dream about. You can look high and low in Hungary for that and not find it. And in Croatia and not find it. In Poland, not find it. You go to Romania, you got these time warp communities, and somehow it still works. Jacob Mikanowski helps us further examine how big an impact the social changes of the early 1990s created for the people who lived in the formerly eastern bloc of countries run by authoritarian communist governments. Just ahead, we'll take a closer look at how they're redefining themselves now as we continue with the author of Goodbye Eastern Europe, an intimate history of a divided land. Later in the hour, Pamela Petro shows us an intimate side of the nation of Wales. She tells us what she was delighted to discover after getting acquainted with a few notoriously hard-to-translate Welsh words, terms that describe emotions and feelings we all have, but where English comes up a bit short. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We're continuing with our look at the changing narrative for the nations we used to group together as Eastern Europe. Jacob Mikanowski is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He weaves decades of academic research and travels with his own Polish and Lithuanian family history in his book called Goodbye, Eastern Europe. So, Jacob, we're talking about this transition from socialism to capitalism, and in your book you talk about something called the transition happiness gap. Hmm. What is is that? It used to be something social scientists could find, and unlike a lot of things in social science, they could find it and replicate it very consistently. Eastern Europe was less happy than the West. You could poll people about their happiness, their life satisfaction, any kind of measure you would find at a rate. And coming out of that transition, that transition is really hard for people. It was really hard, especially for older people. But across the board, people actually shrank. You could measure it in physical things. So you could measure in the uh, generation. Al- alcoholism, escapist drinking, short people. Suicide rates. Suicide rates. Hungary and Lithuania and Latvia used to be the, the suicide capitals of the world. Huh. And kind of consistently, life satisfaction, very low. People lost their senses because there was something positive about that socialist world. It was secure. You knew where your paycheck would be coming from. Mm -hmm. You knew what that tomorrow would be a lot like yesterday. And that transition to capitalism opened the floodgates of kind of of chaos. And it took many years, took over a decade, for things to stabilize. So more of a dog-eat-dog aggressive economic world in capitalism. And people were used to that, protected by the government. Very much. And then you were thrown open and people didn't have that rudeness or experience in that. And things were economically very tough. Uh, Russia went through this in an extreme way, which Mm -hmm. really shaped how they came out of it on the former countries of the Soviet Union. But it was true across the board. The transition must have been just very discouraging. And even business seemed like there, there was these cases where it seemed kind of like magic. In, in Albania and Romania, people got into these giant pyramid schemes. Yeah. And people were like, oh, you can, if you give money to this, and then you get more money out, and it seemed like magic. But the whole system seemed like magic. So people believed in it, and they fell apart very quickly, and people were completely disenchanted and ruined. And in Albania, it turned into a, a civil war, basically. But in Romania, people got um, lost everything. Like, they had anything they had built up in the early 90s, then they lost it just as soon. So that, that transition was very hard. 
So and there was a euphoria, know. and then there was some success, and then what's the, the most recent history for Eastern Europe? Is it building on that success? Because I feel like there's a divisiveness in Eastern Europe now, uh, kind of the, the same dynamic that's going on in the United States with, with mm-hmm. MAGA kind of people where you use uh, fear of immigrants and you, you have Christian nationalism and so on. There are people who are autocrats that are trying to rewire their country to circumvent democracy. It's, it's ironic because especially the countries in the EU have achieved so much. And, and there really is a difference between countries outside the EU economically are still struggling a lot more, especially the ones that have the shadow of conflict, like Bosnia-Herzegovina has a kind of frozen conflict, Ukraine, Belarus, and the Soviet Russia's shadow. But Poland, Hungary, they've achieved so much in 30 years. They've achieved so much geopolitically. They're in NATO. They're in the EU. They've grown by leaps and bounds economically and politically. And that happiness gap was very consistent. It was very consistent. And then it vanished. It vanished around 2016. Western Europe and East, so-called Eastern Europe are about the same level of happiness. And actually, the GDPs are joining. Slovakia, I think, is passing Great Britain. Poland's on pace to pass Great Britain in GDP. So you're actually talking quite prosperous places. But without all that heavy lifting that politicians had to do, now that's gone. Now that the kind of the big jobs of politics are over, now we've gone back to squabbling, squabbling about history, especially squabbling about identities, finding ways to polarize society and get your people to vote for you. So people are, political people are actively polarizing their societies in order to uh, win votes? Poland has that kind of dynamic. Poland is very similar to America, I think, in a lot of ways, that it's it's got uh, deep political divisions, mm-hmm. that they're close, very close, and you're always finding ways to get your side more engaged on your side. So you're finding controversies and stoking them very actively. Hungary is a little bit of a different case, where Orban is an extremely intelligent, extremely wily, kind of a democratic dictator. Kind of if you had a, like a Huey Long type figure, you know, who has a party and can use it to seize every part of the country and figure out how to do that. Well, that's something we have to remember is Mussolini and Hitler were elected. That's you know, true. You know, they, they played hardball. They bent the system to their needs, but they were actually elected. And then when they were elected, they rewired their societies. I think Orban... Is doing that. I think uh, Erdogan in Turkey is doing that. So that they're ones who actually have a fair amount of popularity, but then use all kinds of methods to change the laws and change the constitution and change the legislature and change the media and keep themselves mm. insulated from any kind of challenge. And most of the rest of kind of the EU, Eastern Europe, it's just very contentious, ugly politics, but democratic politics. Would you say in these countries that are struggling this way, the political landscape is divided between rural and small town people and big city, more educated people? It's a leading question. I mean, yeah. that, that's, that was the dynamic in, in England for Brexit, for instance. That's generally the case in Poland. That's generally often the case. In Poland, they have their own version. We call, have red state, blue state. They call it Poland A, Poland B. And Poland A is, is more Western-oriented, more urban, more actually like in Western Poland, closer to Germany. Mm-hmm. And Poland B is more rural, mm-hmm. more that kind of old Europe and, and more in small towns. More conservative. More, more, more conservative. And more, more Catholic. Because uh, Poland is the yeah. most church-going part in Europe in a lot of ways, Absolutely. I think. You know, during communism, the Catholic Church was, uh, people went to church even if they didn't believe in that because it was a way to stand up against the government. They did it for freedom. Mm-hmm. Today, is the Catholic Church used as a pawn in any way between the left and the right politically? Absolutely. Who's using it? Definitely the Polish Catholic Church has thrown itself in on one side electorally, which you see a little bit in America, but they've really... On the right. On on the the right. right. Okay. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're talking with Jacob Mikanowski. He's the author of Goodbye Eastern Europe. Jacob's completed doctoral work in European history at UC Berkeley, and now he works as a freelance journalist and historian based out of Portland, Oregon. We'll have more ways to connect with Jacob in the show notes for this week's episode at ricksteves.com radio. Jacob, you wrote that the essential defining characteristic of Eastern Europe is diversity, diversity of language, of ethnicity, and above all, of faith. Above all, faith. We just talked about the Catholic Church in, in Poland. How does faith and organized religion shape the story of this region? Because you've got Jews, you've got Muslims, you've got Christians, and you've got lots of history. If you're looking for deeper roots of Eastern Europe, I think that for me, that's where it comes in. As Western Europe became more homogenous in the Middle Ages, Western Europe became ever more kind of solidly Catholic. Western European countries, starting with Great Britain, and then France and Spain, kicked their Jews out and they kicked their Muslims out. And those Jews usually went east and they really found a safe haven in Poland, especially Poland, Lithuania, and then Hungary, and then Romania, and all those countries became the cradle of Jews in Europe. And Muslims, they got driven out of Spain, but they drove into the Balkans. So you have the biggest Muslim populations in Europe or in Eastern Europe. There's still Muslim-majority countries there. And you actually have sprinklings of mosques and Muslim populations all the way up to Lithuania and Poland. Hmm. They're actually, there are mosques in very small numbers now, but in Poland, you can go to the Eastern Poland, you can go to wooden mosques dating back hundreds of years. Wow. Where that's really oh, cool to go. You've got a very, very cool photograph in your book of a, of a little wooden mosque with a, like a, a staircase that goes up for the minaret. When we think about, you know, religions in Eastern Europe, you mentioned Jews. Uh, it's hard to overestimate how important Poland was for Judaism during the diaspora. I mean, uh, it was called the Jewish paradise for a while, even all the way back to King Casimir's right? Mm-hmm. Of course, when you have the Jewish paradise, it's a relative term. It was still uh, tough in a lot of ways, but that would be a place that um, Hitler would put his sights on. And I think of the six million people Hitler killed, half of them died in Poland. Half of them were in Poland. And Poland used to be part of this bigger country called Poland-Lithuania. It's a big, slightly ramshackle dual monarchy. But that was the homeland of most, most of Europe's Jews. And about 80 percent, 80 plus percent of American Jews will trace back their lineage to somewhere in there because most Russian Jews are from there too. It's amazing. And it was just Jews would go there because that was the biggest welcome or the, the, the least the unwelcome. Welcome. And they had the biggest, they were useful there. This is kind of a, you can kind of imagine Eastern Europe in a way also the way the American West used to be. That was much more open, was slower to develop. You had big forests and empty fields and you needed people. You people, needed yeah. settlers to come in and you needed peasants to farm and you needed other people to sell. In, much, in, in a lot of anti-Semitic societies, they welcomed the Jews just from a pragmatic point of view. Jews had the skills. They were the bankers. They were the businessmen. They were the traders. And in Eastern Europe, especially in Poland, Lithuania, especially in the East, they lived in towns. Like my, my grandfather came from a, one of these towns that I've spent a lot of time in, that like a real shtetl, which was 40, 60s, 80% Jewish. And Jews did all the small town activities, cobbler, baker, farmers and, and carpenters right. and all the things you would go to the a engine, town. The engine, the engine you know, of the economy. Some people are farming and they have to bring their grain and their things into a town and then have all those little small town services. Now, and they choose it all the small town stuff. Here's an example of how faith permeates the sort of story of Eastern Europe. If you think of former Yugoslavia, you got Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes. And the way I understand it, they're all the same ethnically. They just are distinguished by their religions, Catholic, Orthodox, and Muslim. 
So Serbs, Croats, and, and Bosniaks. Bosniaks. Slo- oh, oh, that's it. Slovens speak Bosniaks. a slightly... Yeah, the Bosniaks good. have the, that Muslim, okay. and they essentially speak the same language. It's mutually yeah. intelligible. I was just, but they'll call it Serbian yeah. or Croatian, but well, it's, you, just a, it's, a, yeah. it's essentially the same thing. And you, you look at them, and all you can dis- define them by is their respective religions. So the religion is that dividing line. Uh, the language is basically the same. If you're outside of it, that like to a Polish speaker like me, it sounds the same. I was just in a Starbucks listening to some Bosnian uh, women speak, and I'm like, oh, I can kind of get this. Mm-hmm. But the those religious identities, Muslim, Catholic, Orthodox, are huge dividing lines. And that's what split Yugoslavia apart was that it was this cradle of diversity and it ended up being coming a fault line that pulled it apart, just ripped uh, it apart, really, in the 90s in a really tragic way. And this is what stirs the history that yep. we, we read of and when we think of the chaos and the heartache and the hard history of Eastern Europe. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by journalist Jacob Mikanowski today, and he's combined 20 years of teaching and travel and research, plus his own Polish, Lithuanian, Jewish, and Catholic family history into his latest book. It's called Goodbye, Eastern Europe. You can learn more about Jacob at his website. It's jacob-mikanowski.com. And that's M-I-K-A-N-O-W-S-K-I. You write in your book, During the 20th century, fascism, communism, and nationalism provided people with powerful sources of meaning-making. Tell us about that. Part of the goodbye in Europe is you're saying goodbye, I'm saying goodbye to that world of my grandparents, great-grandparents, the world of that full diversity that vanished uh-huh. over the 20th century. That that world where you would go to a village and you can get glimpses of this in Bosnia, you can get glimpses of it in places in Albania where you can go to a town and there's a mosque and there's an Orthodox church and a Catholic church and a, sometimes a synagogue and they're all together, different faiths. That was kind of woven through everything. But that was held in place partly by empire. That there's ah, something very yeah. far away. That if you have the rule... And the rulers are very far away. The Ottoman Empire, the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, that kind of, no one is in charge of their own destiny, but everyone can kind of coexist or is forced to coexist because those divisions are but useful. But if, you have, a, far a, away if you have a smaller yeah. unit of power, then it can work for purity, ethnic exactly. purity. And then you, you start saying, well, we need to be nationalists. We need to have a country that is ruled by the people who are the majority in it. Yeah. So we should have one language. And language usually goes with religion, and you have that attempt to impose purity on a space. Because what I found in former Yugoslavia, because some societies were were ravaged by the war and others were not, if you had a a demographic situation in in a former Yugoslav ethnic region and there was a very tiny minority, well, that minority had no chance. They would just escape. They would be banished. But if you had a sizable minority, there's where you'd have more fighting. And the, the part of Yugoslavia that suffered the most was the states that had sizable minorities instead of tiny minorities. Exactly. And the kind of Bosnia-Herzegovina Bosnia, all that, Bosnia that, that didn't have a majority. That just had a, yeah. had a group of, like, there was one minority was biggest, that had a plurality, but no majority. And so you have everyone that's shocking a, for that's power. That's a prescription for bloodshed. And trying to get the neighbors to come in and help you out, Yeah. In your book, you also wrote, history is never singular. It always provides multiple narratives with which to explain the present politics shifted into a never-ending series of battles about the past. So important to have a dual narrative. It's hard for me to write scripts. It's hard to me- for me to write my guidebooks in Eastern Europe because you're captive of one guide and he's got mm-hmm. one ethnic or, or community narrative. Uh, whenever there's a wall, there's two sides and you got to talk to both sides. 
And so much of the politics has become, like we were saying, about since the 90s has become about history. Some places like Poland and actually also Hungary and Romania, it will be about finding a new reason for the country to be what it is. And so you promote certain parts of the past in a very active way that they're like, this is where we're at our best. This is the story we want to sell. And there can be very different. In Hungary, they will go back a thousand years to the pagan Magyars, and they love the invasion of the Magyars and that story of conquest from outside. And in Poland, they really want the story of World War II and the story of the, the anti-Soviet war and the people who fought both Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, that those are the people who are the, who kind of suffered the most and suffered in the right way. Mm-hmm. And you have those narratives built around. These are countries and societies that we used to be very plural, had lots of other people, not just one language, not just one religion. So you lose some of that multifacetedness, that mosaic that really is, I think, the key of what the region is about. Journalist Jacob Mikanowski is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. He looks at the profound changes in recent years to the countries that lie between Russia and Germany, from Estonia in the north to Albania in the south. His book is Goodbye, Eastern Europe, An Intimate History of a Divided Land. Jacob Mikanowski, you've clearly done a lot of work with this Goodbye, Eastern Europe project of yours, and also you've clearly woven in your own family's heritage. And you've been here in the United States basically for a generation, coming from Poland, And I'm wondering, because as I read through your book, there's so many things that kind of hint at what's going on in America today. Do you have any takeaways, any thoughts that the more we understand what's going on in Eastern Europe historically, the more we have a good insight into the the challenges that American democracy is facing right now? I think so. I think um, this might be a, a, a Polish perspective, but I often think, and I'm probably pay attention the most to to Poland and Hungary. But they have some of the same challenges and some of the same developments. I see things happen there before they happen here. There's a way in which America is more like Eastern Europe than it is like Western Europe. Western Europe has these very kind of narrow politics that's kind of everyone's often like in Germany, everyone's closer to the same page, I feel like. Mm -hmm. And in Eastern Europe, you'll have these major struggles between parties and one always Mm -hmm. trying to kind of crush the other one, wipe it out. And that democracy can't have this, when there isn't like a clear center, you can have this real attempt to negate your opponent. It's still democracy, it looks like democracy, but you're trying to always tip it over into something else. And you have some of that that anger and that anguish coming into America, I think, like 10 years after I saw it in Eastern Europe. And it's exacerbated by people digging into their religion and also people groping for wars that were fought a long time ago and to refight them. To refight them and to come up with a very kind of set template of of what this country should look like. It should look like this one thing and everything that's outside of it is is prohibited or prescribed. Like this is what a real Pole is, this is what a real Hungarian is. You have that kind of real American thing Uh, coming in. So interesting. Such a great reason to uh, understand where you're traveling by doing a little research so you can, or reading, so you can bring some context and so important to travel. And while you're away from home, see if you can learn more about your own home by looking at it from that distant perspective. Jacob Mikanowski, thanks for joining us, and best wishes with your book, Goodbye Eastern Europe. Thank you so much. It's been really great. It's been said that a sense of longing keeps the Welsh feeling unfinished but not undone. 
An educator from Massachusetts explains how she felt oddly at home the first time she visited Wales, and how a few Welsh words she learned helped her to capture the reasons why. Pamela Petro shares how the hidden contours of the human heart can find a home in Wales. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. I often say that one of the benefits of travel is that by leaving your home, you gain a better perspective and appreciation of it. But for Pamela Petro, studying in Wales as a college student sparked a sudden and deep complication of her concept of home. And as it turned out, the Welsh have a word for that. Over 30 years later, now an author and a teacher of creative writing, her Welsh thing, as her family called it, is as strong as ever. Her new book, The Longfield, is a memoir that burrows into the sheep-dotted Welsh countryside to unearth far-reaching truths about the meaning of home, the meaning of place, of longing, and belonging. Pam, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Rick. That was the best introduction to me and my book I've ever heard. Well, it's a delightful book, and I'm eager to just get a little better insight into Wales, because clearly you are excited about Wales, and I'm excited to get more excited about Wales. Um, <laughs> Perfect. Set the stage for us. What brought you to Wales initially, and then what happened? Great. I knew nothing about Wales. I found a very particular master's degree program there, and it was in Word and Image Studies, which I had done as an undergrad. And I went off to Wales thinking it was just this big barnacle on the map next to England. And I knew nothing. I didn't know there was a different culture, a different language, that Wales had become the first colony of England in 1282. I knew nothing about that. And I found out. (laughs) That's amazing to think of the distinct cultures within what we think of as Great Britain, isn't it? And they are very, very distinct in many different levels. Distinct and proud. And you feel that in Wales. And you stumbled onto a concept before you even knew there was a a word for it. And I love that when you go, man, there should be a word for this. And then somebody goes, oh, yes, there is a word. Tell us about Kenevan. Perfectly pronounced. Uh, When I got to Wales, I almost recognized the landscape even though I'd never been there before. And that's because I had always dreamed up an ideal place where I could have a long view of of the distant horizon. And in that view, I would be able to understand how the earth worked, how the hills knitted themselves to each other, and how rivers sculpted out valleys. And I could never see any of that growing up in New Jersey because stuff was in the way. Our stuff, the the malls and the houses and the the roads and the cars. So I never had a sense of that. And huh. I got to Wales and I found it. And I felt utterly at home. Was there any reason for that? Do you have Welsh ancestry or had you been exposed to that? Or is it just like you accidentally stumbled onto the place where you have that magic connection? I have no Welsh ancestry, but I'd grown huh. up longing for a sense of geography in in right. a sense, and also a sense of history. In New Jersey, um, the yeah. indigenous people were the Lenape people, and there was no trace of them anymore. Yeah. But in this big open landscape in Wales, I found the Stone Age past and the, the Iron Age that past. Richness. Yeah, yes. and it anchored me. I know from reading you through your book, you're sort of enchanted by the Menhirs and the Dolmens and the Stonehenge Age kind of uh, big big stony remnants of a mysterious past that we really can hardly understand, but we can imagine are representing a 
quite a rich community. Oh, you put your finger on it, Rick. That's it. It's these big, mysterious rocks out in the landscape, and they drew me to them and made me wonder so much. And I think that's when I first thought how important my imagination was to me, and maybe Mm. I could use it to be a writer someday. So, Pamela, we are talking about this unique Welsh word, Cynevin. I've got it figured out now. And (laughs) I guess it goes back to the way that the Welsh noticed that little baby sheep knew exactly uh, which part of the mountain was theirs for some reason, and it was just innate. That's correct. That is probably the most elemental meaning of Cynevin. But it can also mean a sense that you have that you feel at home in a place, though you've never been there before. Yeah, you write about that. You call it, I believe, the unknown elsewhere, this idea of of two definitions of home. I mean, where you live, you know, you have an address where if I want to send you a letter, it'll go there, but where you flourish. And you talk about other examples of that in Welsh culture. One travel writer who I admire and have, have long appreciated is Jan Morris. Tell us how Jan Morris could be dealing with the unknown elsewhere. Ah, Jan Morris was one of my mentors, and and I dearly miss her. Jan flourished both in Wales and elsewhere, and I think she was always drawn away and back, almost like a tide. And I think one of the places she experienced that sense of belonging to an unknown elsewhere was in Trieste in Italy. And her magnificent book, Trieste and the Meaning of Nowhere, is one of the the books that I read that inspired me to write The Long Field. And personally, she was a trans woman. Yes, yes. She, She was just such a an inspiration to me in so many different ways. Somewhere between Welsh and European, somewhere between explorer and travel writer. Yes. And when we go through life, I guess we have to remember where we send the mail, the address, the physical address. It's a nice place, but it's not necessarily where we really flourish. That's right. And I believe, as you started the program saying... Sometimes we have to f- have to travel in order to find home. Those in-between places are the most mm-hmm. interesting ones. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Pamela Petro. She's the author and a creative writing teacher at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. That's where she lives, but the place where she flourishes is Wales, which is the inspiration of her latest book. It's called The Longfield, Wales in the Presence of Absence, a memoir. She's been traveling in Wales now for over 30 years, and every summer she co-directs the Dylan Thomas Summer School at the University of Wales. Her website is PamelaPetro.com. Take me to a moment, Pamela, in Wales where you do flourish. You know, a favorite activity or an interaction with people where where you feel truly, almost crazily at home, even though you're far from New Jersey. Great. Okay. One of the things I love to do in Wales is drive. I love the twisty, turny roads and leaning into the curves and downshifting up the hills. And whenever I go back to to teach the summer school in Wales, I rent a car and I drive up the Tyvee River Valley to the little town of Lampeter, where my summer school is based and where I went to school. And there's a certain point, I'll go around a curve and I see the hills in the distance and they glow a certain color green, and I see that green, and I think the same thought, how can I live anywhere but here? 
How do uh, I live without that grain? I love that. Now, there's another word that you focus on in your book. In fact, the book is called The Long Field, and there's a word that relates to that, hereith, right? Perfect. You got it. I love whales in spite of my difficulty with getting (laughs) the first base on the language, but hereith. Tell us about hereith. Hereith. It's one of my favorite words. One of its possible meanings is the long field, and that's how the title came about. Hereith means to be in the present moment, but longing for something beyond it, something that's in the past, perhaps something that you're always seeking in the future that just slips away from you. In the past, it could be a home, an actual place. It could be a community of people you once knew. It could be a former younger self who had dreams that Mm -hmm. maybe you've outgrown. Whoa. It's interesting that, as I think you point out, that you think there's there's a Welsh word for this, but you don't know if there's an English word for it. I think that's uniquely Welsh. They say uh, hiraith exists in the Celtic languages, but yeah. there is no word in English. And we approximate it in English with homesickness or longing yeah. or nostalgia, but it's more than all those things. You know, it, to me, it's related to Portugal and fado. If you've been to Portugal and the, the fado music, it's the the song of the fisher widow. Uh, there is a sort of an inexplicable longing, a yearning of the soul in the fado culture in Portugal. I think they have a unique word for that also, saude. That is exactly right. The linguists say that of the world's 7,000 languages, only two are exact cognates, and that's hiraith. And I have the Brazilian pronunciation, saudade. So my partner is Brazilian. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> saudade, I yes. guess the word is. So it's interesting that you wrote, it is hereith that makes you Welsh. So with this, you've sort of found your your home, haven't you? Yes, I I believe it goes back to that living permanently in one place but flourishing in another. And I love both my homes, and I love best being in between. You know, one, one thing interesting, as you were talking, it occurred to me, you're able to let that emotion go. A lot of people are probably afraid to let that emotion go because they might get unmoored and get out of their comfort zone, frankly. I think that being unmoored and being out of your comfort zone is what leads you to the creative place, and that's the important thing. That's a kind of freedom. That is a freedom right there, to embrace the risk of culture shock, to see it not as something to avoid, but something to embrace. Oh, that's so wise. Yes. See it as the growing pains of a broadening perspective. Absolutely. In Wales, a lot of people feel that hiraith is something that is negative, that it draws the Welsh back into a past of the has-been and never-was, of a, a Wales that might have been had they not become a colony of England. And I see it, they say it's my inherent American optimism, but I see Hirath as an equation where there's absence, where something's missing, Mm. there is a potential for creative invention and imagination. And that can be on a national scale, all Mm -hmm. the the wonderful hymns and poems Mm. that Wales has produced, Mm -hmm. or it could be personal. I've kind of lived my life Um, longing for and imagining a a whales of the mind. And it's what allowed me to write my book. 
So there's something about the personality, the, the humanity of whales that's unique that I think is the major attraction for you more than somebody who goes, oh, I love the architecture or I love the, the quality of the beer. Or, or I, <laughs> I love, love the, those things you know, too. <laughs> the markets and so on, yeah. Pamela Petro's book, The Long Field, Whales in the Presence of Absence, a Memoir, was shortlisted for a book of the year in Wales when it came out. Her first book, Travels in an Old Tongue, describes looking for Welsh-speaking communities around the world. Pamela also writes about her travels among storytellers in the American Deep South in Sitting Up with the Dead. She posts photos of whales on Instagram and at PamelaPetro.com. You'll find links to Pam's work with this week's show at RickSteves.com radio. Pamela, you also write that the concept of hiraith can relate to many things. Creative hiraith, uh, queer hiraith, hiraith of immigrants. Talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. I think... For me, one of the exciting things about writing my book was trying to imagine Hiraith in all different kinds of ways, one of which was maybe Hiraith as the experience of a minority group. And I relate that to myself as a gay woman, but I also, in the chapter, that same chapter, I talk about being a minority speaker and imagine a country in which the language of that place is only spoken by 25% of the people. They speak a minority language in their own country. So they have a longing to be part of Mm. the majority, but the majority of people have a longing to express themselves in the language that their country gave rise to. And there's just a back and forth longing that Hiraith really gets to the point of. Well, and Wales is a is a great example of a of a language that has rebounded. I think it was on a trajectory towards extinction in the last generation or so. It's remarkable. It's, it's not that it's becoming the first language of Wales, but people communicate in, in Welsh. It gives a new lease on life, I think, for being Welsh in a globalized society. Dayan Weir, very, very true indeed. And Welsh, or Cymraeg, as it's pronounced, as it's said in Welsh, is on the uptick, and people have devoted themselves to that. They've campaigned for radio stations and TV stations and bilingual road signs and education especially. It's wonderful to see my friends raising bilingual children. It's a declaration of we are here. Absolutely. We are Welsh. I mean, sure, we got a British passport, but we are fundamentally the people of Wales. We speak that language. Our children speak that language. Yes. And when you go there next, what you can say when you wake up in the morning, say, Boreda. To everyone you see, it means good morning. Boreda. Boreda. Ah, Boreda. Yes, ah, that's a everyone good one will love you. Everybody knows slancha. I mean, yes. that's, that's Irish, but I suppose that's, is that Welsh too? How do you say cheers? In you the say yachida, good health. Yachida. Yeah, the English say <laughs> yachida, but it's yachida, good health. Yachida. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Pamela Petro. Her book is The Long Field, Wales in the Presence of Absence, a memoir. You know, one great thing about going to a country like Wales, it's a complicated, unique culture, and we can speak the language, even if we're a monoglot English speaker. I love to go to a Celtic country because I do get the sort of the sensation that I'm understanding a foreign language when I listen to people in a place like Wales talking. And And the Welsh, like the Irish, have that wonderful gift of gab where you really enjoy talking, right? Yes, and the accent is so wonderful. The Welsh accent goes up and down. It's like riding a horse. I feel like people's voices are on horseback, and I love that. 
That's a beautiful way to put it. People's voices are on horseback. Yeah, yes. the clip-clops up and down and up and down the hills, the, the hilly landscape of Wales. So give me a couple more words you'd share with your students that oh, absolutely. very bare minimum a traveler should be mindful of. What are a couple of words we should know? I would say dioch is hugely important. It means thank you. That can go a dioch. long way too. Dioch. Uh-huh. With a little bit of a guttural at the dioch. end. Dioch. And we shouldn't be shy about the uh, guttural stuff. No, I mean, no, no. It sounds just like we're being comical or going over the top, but no. Um, go for it. Go ahead. Go for dioch. it. Dioch. Dioch and kroiso. Kroiso means both welcome, as in welcome to Wales, kroiso igamri, welcome to Wales, and also kroiso means you're welcome. So kroiso. Dioch and kroiso are really good to know from a manner. I understand point of view. the word for Wales itself, the English word is from England's perspective, and it means uh, stranger or foreigner or something like that. And the local word means comrade or, yes. or, or part of your team. Thank you what for bringing the, that up. What is the Welsh word for Wales? The Welsh word is Cymru, and it means Cymru. home of fellow countrymen. But the world knows Wales by what the Angles and the Saxons called it, which is Wales, meaning home of the foreigners. Home of the <laughs> That's not right. That's it is not Cymru. right at all. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Hey, Pamela, as a teacher, you're kind of a tour guide. Let's just uh, wrap up this lovely conversation with a moment in Wales where, where you're most gratified in your work, where your students you hope may be having a transformational experience. Oh, that's a wonderful way to wrap up. There is nothing richer to me and more satisfying than to bring a group of people to Wales of all ages and watch them fall in love with the place that I love. Mm. And we do that out in the countryside at all different places. But I think what came to mind as you said that is taking students to Carrigkenan Castle, It's a a Welsh castle on the edge of the Brecon Beacons National Park and having them write about that. But we write right there in an ancient Mm. barn that's now the coffee shop. And one of the students jumped up and said, I can't remember what the walls feel like. And she ran out and she petted the walls. And she came back with a look on her face that she had just touched ancient history and she knew how to describe it. And to me... I get chills just saying that. That made me so happy. I'm almost teary-eyed thinking of the joy you must have had as a teacher. Oh, I think I cried. (laughs) Get it tactile. (laughs) This is Wales. This is the long field. Pamela Petro, thank you so much, and uh, thanks for the inspiration in your book about Wales, The Long Field. Diolch an fawr. Thank you so, so much, Rick. I've loved every minute. All right. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Website uploads are by Andrew Wakeling and Sherry Court. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to Dan Bennett at the Smith College Digital Media Library for helping us out this week. You'll find more about our guests at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Monday Night Travel. It's a weekly travel party and you're invited. Zoom in and have some fun learning about Europe's art, history, culture, and food over drinks and snacks. It's free, it's an adventure, and be careful, it can be addictive. 
Join me and my travel buddies over Zoom for Monday Night Travel. We're live every week, starting at 6 p.m. Pacific Time, 9 p.m. Eastern. Register at ricksteves.com and BYOB.